So today we're carrying on our, uh, our series in overcoming. There's an old story about an airline pilot uh, who was flying over the Tennessee mountains, and he pointed uh, down to a lake, to his co-pilot, he pointed down to a lake, and he said, uh, see that lake, that little one right there? He said, when I was a kid, I used to spend all day sitting in a rowboat, fishing on that lake right there. And every time a plane flew overhead, I would say, I would look up and I would say, man, I wish, wish I was flying that plane. And he said, now I look down, and I wish I was in that rowboat fishing again. Today we're talking about being content, uh, or rather overcoming your discontentment. See, contentment can be an elusive, uh, unending pursuit. We continuously go after what we think the next thing to make us happy is going to be, only to find out that that thing, too, also doesn't satisfy. We have a contentment problem, I believe, as created beings or as part of creation. Uh, We see it in lots of places all throughout history. Uh, Adam and Eve, they literally couldn't be content despite they had everything. God gave them one rule. He said, don't eat from this one tree right here. And they weren't content with that. Lucifer wasn't content being just an angel. He wanted to be more. He wanted to be God. We see it all the time throughout history that we want more. When we're young, we can't wait to grow up and have all the things that older folks have. And when we get old, we wish we were young again and would have all the things that we used to have when we were young. The premise in this video uh, rings true. Uh, You know, we might have a car, but we wish for a bigger, fancier car or a newer, more expensive car. We might have a home, but we wish for a bigger home, a fancier home. Or perhaps we wish for a home that was in a forest or or on a beach or in a tropical place or or in a big city. We have a job, but we dream of a better job, a, a more prestigious job, one that comes with more glory where people will recognize how important you are. We have a discontentment problem in our world where many of us simply have no idea how to be content, how we can become content. Contentment is defined as a state of fulfillment or satisfaction, a state where you feel fulfilled or satisfied. I like that it says a state because it's not a feeling, it's a way that you exist continuously. It is a state that you exist in. So being discontent then is is a lack of satisfaction in your circumstances one where you're not satisfied with the situation or the state that you find yourself in. So it's a state where you are constantly unhappy or unsatisfied about your circumstances or your situation. And that's a big problem because when we live lives of discontentment, we, it leads us to doing more foolish things in life because we succumb to this idea that we deserve more or we deserve better. We deserve different. And so we'll do almost anything in the pursuit of getting that more. We fum- somehow we, we feel like we deserve better, and because we're discontent, we will do almost anything to get it. We feel envious, perhaps, about our situation, and so we have this uncontrolled desire to go out and do whatever it takes to get what we feel we truly deserve. We probably even hurt others along the way, but we don't even notice because we are so wrapped up in this thought of, I deserve more, or I deserve better. And so how do we overcome our discontentment then? I want to read a section of one of Paul's letters that you might not automatically associate with this theme of being content. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 35, and it's a bit longer than I would normally read through, so you can follow through on the screen or in your Bible app on your phone or tablet or in your pew Bible as well. This is a Paul to the church in Corinth. 
Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who is a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. And now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of this present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Don't seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Don't seek for a wife. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has also not sinned. But those who marry will face troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they don't, those who mourn as if they didn't, those who are happy as if they weren't, those who buy something as if it wasn't theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I want you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is unconcerned, or sorry, an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world and how he can please his wife. And interests become divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world. How can she please her husband? I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you might live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. There's a lot in there. And truthfully, I could have probably turned this into about five or six sermons, but I just want to make a few observations out of this, two really important ones. And the first really important observation that I want to make is that Paul is saying here, God has put you where you are. God has put you where you are. The first point, this point actually is made several times. Paul makes it three times in the first five verses. And he sort of says it a little bit differently every time, but he says it no less clearly every time. The first time he says, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. That's verse 17. And then the second time he says, each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. That's verse 20. And then finally, the third time in verse 24, it says, Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Three times in five verses, Paul says the same thing. Because he says it so clearly in three times, so quickly, it means likely that we aren't misinterpreting it when we make the point. It means that he was trying to make his point very clear. We do that, or people do that as authors. If you want to make your point clear, we repeat it, right? We don't just say it once. We repeat it several times. People get it. And Paul does this. He's stressing this point to make sure that they understood it, that we understood it. God has placed us in this life, in the place that we are, for a reason. Whether you agree with it or not, where you are right now, where you are, God has put you there, and he has intended that you would be there. 
And I've often found the reason that we are where we are right now is because God has a particular job for you to do in that place. Pastor Janelle said it. She said that no one can be a disciple like you are. No one could be the same follower that you are. And no one could do the job in your situation that God has put for you to be there. He specifically put you there because you're the person to do it. Last week, Murray and I went to visit uh, a woman from the church uh, and have a chat with her, just to talk with her. We went and did a couple visits. And I won't mention her name because I know she's already going to give me heck for telling the story. So I won't mention her name because I don't want to embarrass her. She is the sweetest, kindest, funniest soul that I have ever met. And I love getting to chat with her because she always has great stories to tell. She always has a word of encouragement that she's feeling, or, or she always has something to say that would just put a smile on your face. And she's also one of the biggest prayer warriors I know. She's always in prayer. So anyways, Murray and I, we went and we had a good chat with her. And we had some great conversation. At one point, the conversation turned to just questions about what heaven will be like. What will heaven be like one day when we get there? And at one point, she said that when God was ready to take her, she was ready to go. She said, I'm ready to go. And we talked for a bit about the fact that though, even though she was ready to go, God obviously still had work for her to do here. And that's why he still needed her to be here with us today. And it's true, because she is one of the most loving, compassionate, evangelism-hearted ladies that I know. Uh, She told me how there's one nurse that comes in. She says, I see one nurse regularly. And she says, every time we see each other, we have a good talk about faith and church and Jesus. And she said, and I pray for this nurse every single day. And she said, I really hope that she meets Jesus and gets a relationship with him before I have to go home. And not only that, she organized an entire group of ladies in the retirement home, and they get together every Sunday, and they watch our services together. She got them all together, and even when they weren't necessarily supposed to be doing that, she got them all together, and they get together, and they watch our services together, because she knows that watching and participating in church as a part of a fellowship or a group is important. See, she's still out there right now today sharing God's message of love and hope and grace and mercy with everything or everyone that she can. This beautifully kind woman has a heart for God that she knows that she still has work to do right now in the place that God has put her. And so as long as she's here, she's going to keep doing that work. And I know that God has put her there because she is the right person for that job in that place. And I'm going to go on a limb and say the same thing is true for you. God has put you where you are in life because for some reason there is something uniquely suited for you to do in that situation. You are the right person for that situation. Now, I'm going to get ahead of something here because I know that there is always a criticism. We say, when we say God has placed you where you are, there's always a criticism that says, what about the bad things? What about all the garbage in life? What about the terrible things? What if I'm in a really terrible place right now? God put me in this terrible place. And what do we do about that? What do we do with terrible circumstances? Well, I'm no stranger to terrible circumstances in life. And I've gone through and lived through many. And what I've learned is that I don't have answers for why. God has put us in those situations sometimes, or why God lets us go through those situations sometimes. But I have, what I have also learned is that even though I don't know why, I know how I got through those situations. And how I got through is only by relying on God. So I know that I might not know why I was in that situation, but I know that the only way I got through was by relying on God to get me through it. And so I don't know why sometimes we end up in bad situations or why God puts us in these situations where we might say, well, I don't love this circumstance, God, but I know that the only way we get through those circumstances is by relying on God to get us through them. 
See, Paul uses some examples here to make his point about staying where you are and God putting you where you are in life. He uses two I want to look at first, circumcision and slavery. And he uses another when he talks about marriage, but I'll talk about that later. Now, I'm not going to dive into the issues of circumstances or slavery because, truthfully, they each probably deserve their own series of sermons. But I want to make a point here about each one. So circumcision first. Paul says, if you're circumcised, there's no point wishing you weren't. Now, you might say, well, that just makes scientific sense, Luke, because you can't. But actually, in the time of the day that we lived in, there was a medical practice where they would try to uncircumcise if you were circumcised. And so Paul says, don't do that. He's saying there's no point doing that. And Paul says, if you're not circumcised, there's no reason to rush out and do it. He says, it's nothing. You don't need to go out and do it. Now, it's important to understand why this is an issue that he has to speak about, because this is an important issue in the culture of the day. At this time, circumcision really mattered in the church. Because the Gentiles, they wouldn't have been circumcised, so they didn't care. They wouldn't have really understood why it was necessary. They really wouldn't have cared. They would have said, well, it's no big deal. But the Jews, however, this was a visible mark of their relationship with God. So this was something that really mattered because it was a visible reminder of the covenant that they shared with God. And so it did matter. And it mattered so much so that the Jewish Christians wouldn't associate with those that were not circumcised. And they were arguing all the time. The Jewish Christians were saying, well, you have to because God said, go do this. And so they wouldn't associate with them. And when they wouldn't associate with them, it wasn't just like a, we don't talk in the foyer at church because I'm grumpy at you. It was like, a, I won't do business with you. My family won't trade with your family. My friends won't sell to your friends. We won't do anything to deal with you or be around you. We won't fellowship you with you. We won't be in the same room as you. They just really would not associate with them in any way. And Paul says, it doesn't matter. He says, you don't have to do that. He says, whether you're circumcised or not, where you are right now, serve and love God there. And he says the same thing about slavery. Now, this is a way more complex issue because we live in a much different world than the biblical world at that point. But what Paul was saying was he was saying, whether you're a slave or a free man, he said, it doesn't matter because your job remains the same. Your job is to serve God where you are. So he says, whether you're slave or free, it doesn't matter because your job is to be a slave to Christ. So whether you're a slave or free makes no difference because we are all a slave to Christ. And so he's saying it doesn't matter where you are right now because your job is still the same. What Paul's saying in this first point is that the issue with you being content has nothing to do with your circumstances. It's whether or not you are choosing, choosing to serve God and rely on God for everything where you are. Donald Whitney said the same thing. He said, we can be content in Christ regardless of our circumstances because in him we have everything we need for now and forever. So the point Paul makes is that where you are in life, you're there because God put you there. So seek God wherever you are. Serve God wherever you are. You can serve God as a doctor, as a lawyer, as a garbage man, as a janitor, as a, as a line cook at Burger King, as a retail store employee, as a florist, wherever you are in life, you can serve God uniquely there that others couldn't. And so wherever you are, serve there. And the second point that I want to make is that change is not always wrong, but it's not always needed. Change is not always wrong, but it's not always needed, and it doesn't always make things better. It doesn't always improve the situation. Change doesn't always make things good. Paul says in verses 25 to 28, he hints that they're going through a crisis. He says, at, that, at this present time, or in this present crisis, he says, 
And we might be thinking, well, what crisis? And commentators aren't 100% sure about the crisis. But what they'll say is that at this time, Corinth was dealing with a big crisis of some sort that was affecting the church especially. So the church was being affected by this culture uh, or this crisis that was affecting all parts of culture. And so what Paul says, he goes, and we're in the middle of this crisis. He says, right now, in the middle of a crisis, is not the time for change. He says, this is not the time for change. And the change he is referring to specifically, he's referring to specifically marriages, raising children or having children, divorcing, changes of relationship in general. He says, right now is not the time for change. Basically, Paul is saying, be wise. There is a time for change, and there isn't a time for change. And that's an important note. Because even though change is very important, and I think often we are so resistant to change. As people, we don't always like change. We like what we get comfortable with. Change is not always the right answer, is what Paul says. Uh, When I was in Bible college, or I guess recently after I graduated Bible college, uh, I noticed one thing that was true of almost every single first and second year Bible college student. We all thought we had the answer of how to change the church or how to fix the church. We all thought we knew there's one big change. We would all come out and say, like, you know, I know how to fix my church. There's one big change we all have to do. And if we did this one thing, it would solve all the problems in the church. And I didn't understand why I was so wrong until I got older and realized that absolutely some changes in churches are drastically needed and are decades overdue. But not all changes are going to be improvements, and not all changes are going to make things better. See, change is not always bad, but it's not always good, and it's also not always needed. There are certainly times in our lives where we should change, and changes are needed, and we should embrace those things. But as Paul is saying here, he says it's important to be wise about those changes. There's a time for them. There's a time not for them. One place where people often think a change will solve the problem is marriage. Our divorce rates in the West are extremely high. And some people will think it's because divorce is so easy to get these days. That's what they say. Well, they're so high because it's so easy to get divorced, and that's why. And I'm not sure that's the full answer. I think divorce rates are high because it's easier to get a divorce than it is to work on our problems. It's easier to just say, well, I need a change, than it is to say, we need to work on this together. And they think that, well, by changing, uh, we'll just make things better. Everything will solve the problem if I just change my relationship. And I think what that points is that, is that we have a discontentment problem in ourselves, and it comes out in our relationships with others. Someone once said that if you can't be content alone, then you'll never be content in a marriage. And we often think that because we aren't content in our relationship or in our marriage, all we need is a change of relationship, and that will fix all the problems. And we think change is going to solve it, and it doesn't. It might make things better for a little bit. It might fix some temporary problems for a little bit. But if we live lives of discontent with everything, it won't be long until we find ourselves in the same spot again, wondering if we need another change. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a time to get divorced, because there is certainly a time for relationships to end, and there is certainly a time where divorces are necessary and should happen. But what I am saying is that if you are discontent in life, if you are discontent in being alone, then changing your relationship status from married to single to married to single to married is not going to fix the problem, because you're dealing with a surface issue. It's a temporary fix. You need to go to the issue that lies underneath, which is the discontent problem in you. That's where the real issue is. 
Another way this plays out is when young people often aren't happy in the church or with the church. And I've seen it where young people were guilty of saying things like, if they would just change this one thing, this church would all be better and it would be full and it would be perfect and I would love it. If they would just change this one thing. But I've, I've often seen that even if that one thing changes, we're still not content or the people are still not content. I had a few friends that uh, we all went to a church together and they left the church we went to because the music wasn't hip enough, really. Like, it wasn't contemporary enough. They were only playing old songs. They weren't playing any new songs, and and they were only playing hymns, not any contemporary stuff. And so they said it wasn't, you know, the worship wasn't good was the way they said it. So they left to go to the cool church plant down the street. Now, the musical part of this church plant, uh, the worship, it was really good. It was was very good musically. Uh, I think they had a fog machine. I know they had colored lights. Uh, They had a whole nice setup on the stage. It was great. And they raved at first. They said, it's so much better here. Like, Luke, it's so much better. This church is so much healthier. It's so much better here. The worship is so good. But it wasn't very long until they started complaining about something in this church, too saying if they would just change this one thing, this church would be perfect. And how when that church didn't change that one thing, they uprooted again and they left to go to the next church down the street. So shortly they were at another church and the cycle just repeated again. They were satisfied for a little bit, but after a while there was still just one thing that they needed to change. It's been a few changes now and now those people don't go anywhere because they thought a change would solve all their problems. A change in circumstance, it would solve all their problems. By changing churches, they thought, this is going to solve the issue for me. And there are lots of people in churches who do this. They're discontent with one thing, and they go to another church, and they think, this is the one, and they're there for a bit, and they find something else that they don't like, and they go somewhere else. But each time they find that their satisfaction or this fulfillment, it only lasts a short while, and they find themselves being discontent again. And that has nothing to do with the circumstances. It has to do with the discontentment problem inside us. And see, there is a change, though, that actually does need to be made in that situation. They're not entirely wrong. A change will help that problem. But the change is not a change in circumstance. A change is a change inside of them. That will help the problem. It wasn't the change in where they were going that they needed to pursue, but it was a change inside their hearts. They needed to change their lives from one of discontentment to being a life that is lived content. See, change is sometimes needed, but sometimes change is not needed. Change is sometimes great and what is, is so good, and sometimes change is not what is, is good, and sometimes it, it can be bad. Sometimes change does solve the problems, and sometimes it just perpetuates the cycle and keeps it going. If you find yourself constantly unhappy in a place in life, maybe it's a job, you jump from job to job to job, or relationship to relationship to relationship, or church to church to church, or friend group to friend group to friend group. If you find yourself doing that, I think you will seldomly be happy with that next change because you're only relying on your circumstances for the source of your contentment. And so how do you know then that that's how you're living? Look at your heart. Look inside yourself. Are you constantly critical of all the things around you? Do you always find something wrong in every situation to point out? Even when something just so amazing happens, something huge, something big, are you the first person that points out, well, this is bad about it, and they, need, they didn't do this well? Are you someone who always sees a downside in every situation? In every place you find yourself, do you always look for one more needed change to make that situation better? And if so, you might have a problem with discontentment that you need to overcome. So how do we overcome it then? 
Well, Paul gives us these two points here. He says, you know, first, God put you where you are, where you are, right where you are, because he needed you there. So you're uniquely suited to be there. So, so if you're there, serve God there. Find God there. Love God there. And then Paul also says that, you know, be wise about your changes. Change does not always solve the problem. And so if you are constantly looking for that change as the answer, stop and be wise. Change inside you. And so he gives us those two ideas. But I think we also see the solution or how we overcome uh, our discontent play out later in another one of Paul's letters in his life. Uh, I have a mug in my office. It's sort of a favorite of mine. It's, this is the mug here. Uh, and there's a photo of it. It says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. It is my favorite mug. Uh, and I love this because it is a play off of Philippians 4.13. I'm sure we're all familiar with Philippians 4. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Uh, and it's a play on that because we often use Philippians 4.13 to support whatever we're doing. We, we point at anything we want and we say, well, I can do all things through Christ, right? It can be whatever we want. We could be down at a hockey game, be like, we got this, guys. We can do all things through Christ, right? The context of that verse is often completely overlooked. It doesn't matter what endeavor we're taking. We look at that verse and we go, yep, I can do all things through Christ. But the context of this verse shows us how to overcome our discontent if we just look at the context. Do you know where Paul was when he wrote this, Philippians, uh, the the letter to the Philippians? According to most scholars, Paul penned this letter in about the year 62. In the year 62, he was in one of two places, in prison in Rome or in prison in Ephesus. There's There's debate between those two. Either way, Paul wrote this letter while he's sitting in a prison cell. And he's not just sitting in a prison cell. Like It's not like a, a California, Florida prison where he can go out for a stroll in the yard. It's not a fancy, nice prison. This is a prison in the year 62. It's stone walls with like a stone gate or an iron gate, and you're not getting out. That's, it is what it is. You're there forever. And he also knows that he's in prison, and he's likely never coming out. He knows he's been in trouble a ton for what he's doing, which is sharing the gospel. And he keeps saying, I'm not going to stop. And so they keep throwing him in prison. He knows he's not getting out. He knows he's probably going to die for what he's done. And that's important to know as we read this. He's sitting in a prison cell, knowing his life is probably over. He's not getting out of jail at the worst, or sorry, at the best. And at the worst, he's going to die for this. And we also need to read the verse right before verse 13. We often skip over verse 12 and we go right to verse 13. But if we read verse 12, it actually says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I am well-fed or whether I'm hungry, whether I live in plenty or I live in constant want. I can do it all through him who gives me strength. I have learned the secret of being content, Paul says. And well, what is it, Paul? I can do it all through Christ. While sitting in a prison cell awaiting his execution, he says he's content. He's awaiting his death. And he says, and I have learned to be content with wherever and whatever situation I find myself in. He says, I can do it all through Christ. Paul's contentment, what he's saying here is, Paul's contentment comes from his relationship with Christ. That's it nothing else. It has nothing to do with the circumstances. It has nothing to do with where he finds himself. This is a pretty terrible circumstance in life. You're in prison and you're going to die because you believe in Jesus. And Paul says, I'm content. I have learned to be content. And it comes from my relationship with Christ, nothing else. That's the secret. That's how you overcome being discontent. You rely on Christ, not your circumstances, as the source of your contentment. 
John Maxwell said, he said, your circumstances and your contentment are unrelated things. They're, they're not even related. Your circumstances and being content, they're not related. He says they have nothing to do with one another. And he was right, because your contentment comes from within. It comes from your relationship with God, not where you find yourself. Charles, Charles Swindle said something similar. He said, when Christ becomes our central focus, contentment replaces our anxiety, as well as our fears and our insecurities. When Christ becomes our focus, contentment re replaces everything else. We can be content when he's our focus. Paul was saying, wherever you are, whenever you are, serve God there. Rely on Christ there. So bloom where you are planted. Bloom where you're planted. Let God define your life, not your circumstances. And change of circumstance is not always the answer to making you happy if you have discontentment in your heart. If you learn to do that, if you rely on Christ as a source for your contentment, you will find that you can be content in any and every situation. In the words of Paul, whether you are well-fed, or whether you are hungry, whether you have plenty, or whether you are in constant need, and whether you find yourself in prison awaiting your death, you can still be content. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Paul and his words to us. Thank you for the wisdom of, of your word and scripture that we can look at and we can learn so much from. Thank you for making it clear to us. And God, teach us to make you the source of our contentment. Help us not to look at our circumstances or our situation, but Lord, help us and teach us to find our contentment in you. Help our relationship with you be the entire source of our contentment. And then Lord, help us to be content people so that whatever situation we end up in, whether it's good or it's bad, we can be content in everything simply because we have you. Teach us to be that kind of people, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.